Let's go through every single package installed on a Linux install DVD, specifically Slackware 14.2. Um, of course, these are all open source packages that I'm talking about on this show, so they probably can still apply to you, even if you're not running Slackware and even if you're not running Linux. These are open source packages, so you can download the source code and run them on any computer, whether you're running Linux, Mac, Windows, BSD, doesn't matter. You can learn probably something from this episode. So let's get started. I think we'll get through two different packages today. One is called OProfile, and the other is called P2C. So we'll start with OProfile. It's got a bunch of different binaries in the package, which, of course, you can always find out on Slackware what's installed and where it is installed from the slash var slash log slash packages and then the name of the package. So in this case, it's OProfile do a less on that and I see that I've got user bin, user bin o count, user bin op check perf events, and so on. So about, I don't know, let's say about nine different binaries, more or less. And they all, not all, but many of them kind of, well, all of them are directed in the same, they sort of go towards the same, sort of, in the same general direction. Um, by which I mean they take a profile, hence the name of the package, I imagine, of your system, of a, of a Linux system. It, it looks at the kinds of events or the number of events running on your system, being run on your system, and it does this by using the hardware performance counters provided by your CPU manufacturer. Um, so let's just try one. So uh, the first one in the list is OCount, and if I do a man OCount, then I get... Actually, I'm going to specifically do a man O count, not an info O count, because the uh, color is better in the man viewer, I have discovered, at least when I'm piping it to most. I don't know if it's different for something else. Anyway, uh, O count, event counting tool for Linux. O count is an o, o profile tool that can be used to count native hardware events occurring in either a given application, a set of processes or threads, a subset of Actum system processes or processors, or the entire system. So you can only run in one of those modes. So we have to specify what we want to look at. So the, the easiest one is just to do sudo ocount dash dash system dash wide. Put in your passphrase, and it says that it's running. It tells me that I can control C or kill sigint the number of the process to stop counting. So I'll just let it kind of run for a little while. That's long enough. And now I'll control C. It tells me that the events were actively counted for 14.6 seconds and the event counts actual for the whole system in 14.6 seconds was 35,280,247,920. And the event there is CPU underscore CLK underscore unhalted. It's a lot of a lot of events happening on a system. You can whittle this down by with a couple of different options, and one of those options is to follow a very specific process ID or PID, and the option for that is dash dash process dash list dash P PIDs. Um, or, or the dash p is the short version of that, uh, and then the PIDs that you want to, uh, to to count the events for. So I could do sudo. Well, I, I guess I need a p 
pid of something. Let's do pid of audacity, 31314. That's what that is. And then I'll do sudo ocount dash p, 31314. And I've misspelled sudo. There we go. And now it's running. It says control C or kill sig int 31609 to stop counting. And I don't know, that's probably been about 14 seconds, would you say? So I'll control C. Events were actively counted for 10.8 seconds, a little bit under, oh well. CPU click unhalted, um, 8,256,934,087. It's not that all, exci all that exciting, really, but I think you kind of get the, the point or the, the, the gist of O-count. There are lots, well, not lots, there are some other options. You can look at uh, separate CPUs, and you can look at separate threads, timing intervals, all, all kinds of things you can adjust or look at. I'm not going to go through all those because we got a lot to cover. But there you go, that's O-count, and that's what it does. Um, I, I don't, you, you may notice, I don't have sort of a use case for this. I'm simply, t I'm just, I'm looking at what the tool is doing. I, I don't know what I would use that information for person. op-check-perf-events is a command that checks for kernel perf PMU support. So, in other words, it determines whether the kernel that you're running supports performance or perf interface and returns a zero exit status if it is supported. So if I do op-check-perf-events and I get nothing back, so apparently my kernel supports the O-Profile uh, toolset pretty much, which is good because that's what I'm talking about and doing right now. So next up is op-annotate. Op-annotate, there are two different ways to use it. You can get a, well, it annotates either source or assembly code. If you want to get the source code, you need either, well, I guess I think you need debug information either way. Um, if not, you can also point it to a directory full of samples from OPERF and sort of use that, I think, for the annotation. I still imagine that you would need the debug source. Anyway, it's pretty complex to get the source one going because you have to write a, as far as I can tell you, I have to write a OPROFILE specification. I'm not really interested in doing that for this demo uh, because I'm never going to use it again. If you want to look into it, it's all in the man page for O-Profile. It, it discusses what can go in an O-Profile specification. It omits, unfortunately, where that specification is supposed to go, but I'm sure that if you research it and read up on the documentation, you could figure it all out. What I'm going to do to get past op-annotate is run it against a binary and get annotated assembly output. And the way that one might do that is passing the dash dash assembly option. So that's just dash dash assembly. So op annotate dash dash assembly. And then uh, I think I'll do a dash dash threshold T-H-R-E-S-H-O-L-D 10 op annotate. And then I'm going to point it at this little sample application that I've got here, dot slash primes. It is an application that calculates primes up to some number. So I'll do that. And it spits out a bunch of assembly code with annotations. I, I somewhat sort of recognize some of these things from the assembly episode that I did. But it's all Greek to me, don't know what it's telling me, don't really understand what I would do with this information. But in theory, what you can do, like if, you, if you're actually using this to, to analyze your code, you can find out from this what your code is really causing the computer to do. You, you can, and you can limit it in your O-Profile setting 
to just look at a certain CPU or to look at only the CPU calls or at certain things. And and so you know that when your code runs, that this is what it is demanding of the system. And that's that's really good information. Um, it, it's one of those things where I think a lot of you, – you do have an intuitive sense after a while of of what an application sort of needs from your system. And, and it, it's more than just intuitive. You can also kind of figure it out. You, you know if this is an application that loads, I don't know, a big complex uh, data file. Well, you know that that data file has to live in RAM. So you know that your the application is 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 dealing with RAM. Uh, if you know that there's I don't know a bunch of like video conversion happening, then you you know that that's going to be taxing your CPU a lot more than maybe a text editor or something. But then again, what if your text editor is taxing your CPU a lot? Maybe you need to know about that. Maybe you need to see a report on that and and find out what really is happening. So that's the kind of thing that op annotate can do. And again, there's the dash dash assembly or dash dash source. Those are your two options. The dash dash source requires a profile. I'm not going to do that. Dash dash assembly, a little bit easier. I don't know. To me, it's a lot less useful, I imagine, than the source annotation would be, but it's the easier option. So that's what I chose here. Next in line is op archive. This produces an archive of O profile data so that you can analyze it elsewhere on a different host. So it creates a, doc, a, a directory and it populates that directory with executables and libraries and debug info files and O profile sample files. And you can tar that up and send it to someone else who would maybe be able to make more sense of its output. Or you could send it to a different machine because you don't want to take up time on, on the current machine, analyzing it, or, or whatever the scenario might be, you've got a little archive of all of this of this data. There's a little quirk in, in here that I, I've detected that I didn't see mentioned in the man page. Maybe it was, I just overlooked it. But if, if there is a oprofile underscore data, so by default, oprofile saves profile data to your home directory in a, in a, in a folder called oprofile underscore data. It creates that for you. It just it happens when you first run an, any O profile tool that that, that generates um, output, so or or rather uh, report output. Um, so it it does that for you. And I'm gonna take a drink of coffee here. And that's generally considered the default location. Now I have noticed that um, Op Archive detects automatically if you have a directory called O profile underscore data in your current location. It'll use that instead of your home O profile data. So I didn't I didn't see that mentioned in the man page. So and even if it is mentioned, the fact that I skimmed over it without noticing it means I think it's probably worth mentioning here. Just be aware it does that. It picks up local O profile underscore data over the default location if it's present. So going back to my home directory and running op archive dash dash output dash directory and then tilde slash demo slash um, arc. Now I need to make a directory called arc in my demo directory. Uh, there, I already did. Okay. Um, so as long as that exists, that's my output directory. The input directory is the one in the current location. So since I went back out to my home directory, that's this one, oprofile underscore data. And I will run that now. And it gives me a bunch of output it says that the 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 o profile underscore data is the session directory that it's using um 
it says that that's not the standard location, apparently. The standard location is slash var slash lib slash o profile. It's news to me. So it says, when using Opera port and other post-processing tools on this archive, you must pass the following option, dash dash session dash dir equals slash home slash cloud two slash o profile data. Let's, let's do that real quick, just for kicks. Session dir equals slash home cloud two slash o profile underscore data. That gave me a report. Wow, that's really nice. Yeah, that, that gave me a nice report. Actually, this is quite nice. So this is um, session data on audacious which is a media player that i like and it's it it tells me that there are one million three hundred fifty eight thousand three hundred nineteen samples a hundred percent of them are for audacious and the sample percentages uh thirty percent for lib vorbis.so that's not really a surprise thirteen percent for libcute 5 gui thirteen percent for k all sims eight for libpulse common six for libaug, five to libc, four to libaugcore, and so on. So you get a really nice, I think, uh, human, I mean, it's human-readable, but human-friendly output of, like, exactly what that process, what, what that what that PID was doing. I really like that op report. So just as a reminder, um, this, this op, this archive, this, this session data comes from OPERF, which we have not done yet. So let's do that now. So OPERF, uh, let's do, I guess, a man page first. OPERF is a performance profile tool for Linux. So this is the one. This is the package, or, the, you know, this is kind of the star of the package, at least in my mind. Um, this is kind of the one that, this is why it exists. Now you can, again, do OPERF dash dash system wide, or you can provide a dash dash PID and get specific uh readings on 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 something so uh when i was setting all of this up i did a pid of audacious because at the time i was listening to music uh now there's no pid of audacious because i'm not listening to music i'm making a podcast uh so i guess i could do audacity for instance okay 31 314 i already knew that actually and um then i could do op no operf operf dash dash pid three one three one four or you know if you're lazy you can just do all of that all at once you could do operf dash dash pid uh dollar sign parentheses uh pid of audacity close parentheses and then hit return i'm not going to do that because i don't actually want to overwrite my audacious my audacious uh data i guess i could to be fair but here's a session dir argument and i think i can just use that to redirect this so i'm going to make a direct well first of all i'm going to confirm that i'm in my home directory i am okay so i'm going to do make dir o profile underscore data underscore audacity there and now i'm going to use that as my dash dash session dash dir o profile data underscore audacity and of course it didn't do anything because it needed sudo permissions and now it started okay so that command again was sudo operf dash dash pid dollar sign parentheses or, or a backtick if you prefer just a backtick pid of space audacity close parentheses or close backtick whichever you ended up using dash dash session dash dir o profile underscore data underscore audacity which already existed i created that directory specifically for storing this information now i feel like 
that's probably long enough. So I'm going to do a control C and then we'll do an op report. No, do a pseudo op report dash dash session dash dir equals home clat two o profile underscore data underscore audacity. And we get lots of wonderful output here. I really like this op report, man. This is really nice. So this is audacity 28. 286,844 samples gathered. Uh, I don't see how many seconds that was. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm not really sure. Anyway, um, oh, it gives you the uh, CPU family and speed estimated. It's kind of nice. It does say that it lost some samples, so I'd have to look into, like, why that happens. I guess you, I could look in operf.log for further details. It says that libcairo, 20% libcairo. 10% libpango, 9 libharfbuzz, 8% libc. That's really interesting that audio isn't really scoring that high on this list. That is so interesting. Uh, I mean, I, I, granted, this was like maybe 10 seconds, right? I mean, it's 286,000 samples. It's not, it, it, you know, if, if I'd taken a, a longer sample, it could have been drastically different. But that is really interesting. The main ones are not audio related i mean not directly anyway and lib pulse interestingly scores way down here on the like 0.2029 lib pulse common that's the first instance of of i almost want to say that's the first instance of a dedicated sound library yeah it's fascinating fascinating stuff so that's lib op report uh, combined with lib or not lib uh that's op report combined with operf that i think that's the the power combo like uh, you know in terms of like why does this package exist i think it's operf and then op report i think those are the two those are the two reasons for this package at least as far as i can tell i mean i'm sure the other ones are very useful and i don't mean to like slander them and anything like that but those to me really feel like that's the the power combo for sure op gprof produces gprof format profile data i feel like this is something we've used before gprof i think it was included in the gnu c compiler package if i'm remembering correctly well the long and short of it is that i couldn't get this one to work really op gprof uh, it, it it keeps asking me for things that i feel like i'm providing it so for instance if i do an op gprof dash dash session dir equals tilde slash o, prof, o, o profile data dash dash image path equals slash user bin and then the word audacious it kind of lingers for a moment and then it says oh no no sample found please specify a session containing sample data well as far as i know that's what i'm that is what i'm pointing it at with the sat the session dir o profile underscore data so and in that has sample data I've seen the sample data through op report, so I'm not exactly entirely sure why it's... Oh, wait, I know. Pseudo. I'll bet. No, still still doesn't like that. Okay, so, yeah, I'm not sure why it's not working. It doesn't want to work, uh, and I'm not going to spend any more time trying to get it to work. It is a thing that this can do, and from reading the documentation online i i do feel like it should it should be working i i'm sure that it's something that i'm missing but i'm just i'm i'm not getting there but just because gprof we've already gone over gprof we're going over o profile now i think getting them to talk to each other or whatever 
shouldn't be that hard if you actually have the correct data. And I have a very limited set of data that I'm working with because I just haven't run prof O profile for that long. Okay, let's look at op help. Uh, it lists O profile events. So by default, this lists the available performance counter options. If you give it a symbol event name, it returns the hardware value, okay? So we could do, uh, let's see, how can we do this? Let's do op help CPU CLK unhalted, I think it was. Yeah, 118. Uh, let's do op help data underscore mem underscore refs. No such event. Really? No such event. Okay, cool. Well, it's fair enough, I guess. Their documentation's out of out of date. But the CPU underscore CLK underscore unhalted worked because I saw that in the op report um, output. Uh, and it's 118. What does that mean? No idea. It's the, it, it is apparently the hardware value. Now, if you just run op help, you get a bunch of information. Like, you get a lot of, just, you'd have to pipe that to less, because it just goes on and on and on and on. So these are all of the, the actually, it's not as long as I kind of thought, to be honest. But these are available C, uh, events for, for a CPU. In this case, a CPU type AMD64 Family 15H. That's the, I'm running an AMD chip. That's what is being listed here. So it would look different if it was a RISC chip or, or maybe even an Intel chip. I don't know enough about the difference between Intel and AMD to know whether these calls would, would have new names or different names. Uh, I don't think they would. I, I can't imagine. But maybe there would be some extra ones on Intel. Who knows? Point is, you get a lot of information there. Kind of cool. Kind of gives you some insight on, um, on on what it is you're profiling and also how how this computer stuff works. It's pretty advanced. Um, op import converts sample database files. It, it converts a sample database file from a foreign binary format, or ABI as they call it, to the native format. I cannot demo this one. I don't have foreign, um, foreign binary format to convert. But I'm going to assume that if someone is using this tool to the to the degree that they need conversion, they would probably go straight to op import and very much understand how to use it. I mean, it's a pretty simple command uh, in theory. I mean, so was OPG prof as well, but um, it it only has like four four options. Um, one of which actually, yeah, it's got three options. One of which is a force flag. One of which points to the ABI file description, and then finally one is the output specifier. So it really is just kind of an input-output kind of command. Speaking of simple commands that I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on, uh, opjitcon. So jit, J-I-T, is kind of a uh, well, it's a mispronunciation of git. Thank you. Um, jit, J-I-T, is a Justin. It's it. it, it the, the phrase is just in time, which means that, that things are being processed just before they need to be run. And one of the things that does that are uh, interpreted languages, uh, well, specifically um, a language like Java with a virtual machine uh, is what they call it, a virtual machine. It's not like a, a virtual machine like you and I might think of when we're playing around with the latest Linux distro without installing it. This is a, a virtual machine for the language. And so the language, the Java language, gets sent into this little machine, the little code machine, that, and the only job of this machine is to translate Java calls to 
whatever your system is. It does that translation so that when you're running the software, uh, things happen on your CPU as you would expect. That's the magic of Java. Um, it, 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 it does this because you, you, the OS that you're running it on has its own personal virtual machine designed for it, and it can interpret this Java code specifically for your architecture. And it's huge. It's a huge, huge game-changing kind of thing. And it's probably one of the big reasons that Java is still around and still quite a powerful technology. I mean, you know, it's funny. I see online a lot of people really, really not liking Java and getting very upset about Java existing and, and so on. And I just, that has not been my experience at all. I have enjoyed every moment of my time with Java, whether it's using something written in Java or writing Java myself. It's a very pleasant experience because it just makes that cross-platform ideal basically effortless. You don't really have to think about it when you're working with Java. And I know people think, people say, I used to read this all the time, Python is is cross-platform or this library set or this framework rather like Qt is cross-platform. Actually, Qt is a bad example because it does really, really well. Let's say WX widgets or something like that. It's cross-platform. You don't need the virtual machine layer. And yet, in my experience, my limited experience, granted, um, it, it requires a lot of work to get those quote-unquote universal uh, languages or frameworks to actually be cross-platform. Like, yes, it it may try to run on a different system, but until you account for this one weird little thing that nobody knows about except one random person on Stack Overflow, it's just not going to work correctly. Whereas on Java, so far, it just hasn't been my experience. It's been, you write it in Java, and you sort of let the virtual machine and the people who are programming that virtual machine figure it all out for you. And what a what a beautiful, beautiful idea that is. So anyway, I, that was a distraction, a, a completely random uh, sort of impassioned plea to do more with Java, but um, aside from that, that's what they're talking about JIT here, j just-in-time um, activities, and so the op-jit-conv, I don't know why they call it the conv, but the, the, the and, and I don't know because it doesn't really have any, doesn't have any sort of documentation, well it does, it's online, if you go to um, oprofile.sourceforge.io slash doc, you see all the documentation. It's quite good documentation. I highly recommend it if you're going to be using this tool. Um, I mean, not so great that I could use it to get OG Prof working or um, another one in there that wasn't working. But, I mean, it's still really quite good. And I feel like the things that I'm missing are partly because I don't know enough about this process myself and also partly because I don't want to sit down and do all of the, the 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 lessons that I would need to do to get myself up to speed on this just to be able to talk about it once and then never use it again. So that's kind of like where I'm where I'm at with this. Um, so anyway, documentation's good. It doesn't really say why this is considered a conversion process, uh, other than I think maybe because it is converting output from a virtual machine to something that's relevant, you know, for your system. And there are a couple of different ways to do this with opjitconv. And frankly, I feel like it's a little bit um, over complex. Not super over complex. You do have to point it at an agent path, which is somewhere in your libdir, and it's a libjvmti underscore oprofile.so, which I guess I could just for kicks 
do a real quick search here. Uh, what, so what am I searching for? Um, libjvm. Let's do a libjvm in this uh, package. I do not have that. So I don't have necessarily faith that this exists on my system. Uh, let's do adopt openjdk. Uh, let's do type f and I think dash i name equals star. I've already forgotten this stupid string. Again, libjvm. It's not that hard to remember, actually. JVM. Okay. Uh, okay, libjvm.so does exist, but not libjvmti underscore o profile. So I'm not 100% not sure that that would be the correct thing. I mean, I guess we could try it. It doesn't cost anything to try it. So objectconf-agent, what is it? Dash agent path colon slash user slash lib64 slash adopt open jdk slash dash type no not sorry uh lib where, where does it live uh it lives in lib server libjvm.so no it doesn't like that uh it says non-option detected at opt end opt index one so anyway my point is here that this feels to me a little, just a little, a wee bit over complex compared to a tool that already exists uh, and that is dedicated to this very activity, and that is JSP. JSP is a um, a profiler for 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 Java itself for for OpenJDK, and it ships with OpenJDK, so it's something that's very easy to run and to use and uh the, the syntax is um pretty darn simple you run jps dash v to show you what is running uh and you just jps if you want a, a shorter version of that of that view and it gives you information about about those processes as well so jps kind of gives you a insight into into processes running into Java processes running on your system, and then you can use something like JConsole uh, to actually sort of dig down and find out really what's going on within that virtual machine. So the toolchain already exists outside of OProfile. I don't know that it's a one-for-one -one comparison because I, I, I'm i not really that urgently... I, I don't have an urgent need to profile my system, either the code that I'm running on it or the code that it that I'm inheriting on it by installing, you know, applications from other people. But obviously, if you're a programmer or if you're just really into this sort of thing, then optimizing that code base would be potentially really, really important to you. And this is the tool set for that. I mean, OProfile itself, not 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 OJIT, whatever. But it would obviously be very uh, interesting to people who who want to optimize code or just to be able to see what exactly is going on on their system. I could see going down this path myself. I really could. If I didn't have other important things to do during the day, I could absolutely, not that this isn't important, but it's not. it doesn't rank for me. But at one time, I really think I would have been fascinated in just running op, OPERF and OPREPORT on just a bunch of things just to really see what's taking up cycles, CPU cycles, on my machine. And how could you fine-tune your machine to sort of eliminate the, the greedier ones and um, kind of run less greedy ones on a more sort of regular basis? So really, really fun stuff. I think it's worth worth knowing about. I'm really glad that I 
I have been uh, introduced to this tool now because I, I did not know about it, and uh, I, I think it's very cool. In spite of me not covering everything in, in the greatest detail possible, I still think that this is a really cool find. I think I'm going to go find some coffee now, and when we come back, I will read some listener email and then talk about the Pascal programming language. Hopefully you've got your coffee. I also have listener email, and uh, I guess I'll read one now. So this is from Brad. He says, listening to episode 422, I have a love-hate relationship with deletion on Unix. Generally, I prefer the standard RM, or if I need verification, RM-I. I hate .trash. For instance, the transmission app uses .trash. I was not aware of this, so I had a .trash hierarchy on my NAS box. When I downloaded an ISO image and clicked remove and deleted the and deleted the files, it would write them to .trash. I did not realize this and had multiple terabytes of deleted data on my NAS. Wow, that's that's horrible. Once I got rid of the data there, the data on my NAS went from 65% to 35%. Wow, so 30% of his network attached storage was eaten up by deleted data. Fascinating. Okay, anyway, he says, given that I am on FreeBSD, I prefer to use ZFS snapshots. I have snapshots that go back a year, so my desktop and laptop both use the following scheme. One snapshot every 15 minutes. One of those becomes an hourly snapshot. One becomes a daily snapshot, and one daily becomes a weekly. One weekly becomes a monthly, and then one monthly becomes a yearly. So I can go back and have a better-than-average chance of recovering a file and still and I'm still able to use plain old RM. Just wanted to share my experience and a possible alternative to the dot trash infrastructure. So uh, this is Klaatu now. Um, this really kind of just sort of opened a whole new world of possibilities to me. I never even once thought far enough outside the box to think, well, what if there was a world where where removing files wasn't wasn't sort of the the question. You know, so in other words, and this is part of the reason why I don't like the RM command, because I largely feel that the desire to quote unquote erase data is mental, like it is in our mind. We we think, oh, I want to get rid of that file, so I'll use RM. Well, you're not getting rid of that file. You know that you're getting rid of it in the sense that you are now making it more difficult for yourself to get to that data, but we all know that it's not really gone. I mean, anybody who's ever had to reco uh, recover a deleted file from a hard drive knows how easy it is to use test disk or scalpel or both or whatever and to rescue that file. So it's not really gone. It's still on the hard drive. Now, it might be garbled. It might be only, you know, it might be partly overwritten by something else, or it may well not be. And again, anybody who's ever had to recover a file from a deleted, for, you know, a supposedly deleted file from a hard drive knows that those those 
files famously, infamously still exist on the drive even after you delete them. Why are we using RM to just obfuscate them from ourselves? So if we just kind of step away from that theory entirely and just acknowledge, okay, well, the file is going to be on the hard drive. And then we use the file system itself to formalize the state of the hard drive every 15 minutes, every day, every week, and so on. Then we don't have to worry about how we delete the files. We can just RM a file and... and, and deep down we'll know that it's in a snapshot. I mean that makes a lot of sense to me. I I, I don't guess I, I guess I don't exactly know like fifteen minutes is probably good enough, right? I I guess it would still make more sense to me to have a staging area. But then I guess you'd also want to sort of be rigorous on how often that staging area is cleared. So it's it's a little bit I don't know. It, I guess it's a personal preference. He says specifically a dot trash infrastructure. I I don't know if he's talking about literally a dot trash infrastructure. I in my email back to him I assumed he was speaking about a literal tilde slash dot trash, which I don't know what that is because the free desktop specification says it should be in tilde slash dot local slash share slash trash I think or something like that. So that's a little bit tough. I mean the, it's really pick your you know pick your battles right i mean if you want a staging area maybe i do maybe i don't i keep going back and forth on it um then it it is i guess partly up to you to make sure that that staging area is then excluded from your backups so whatever you're using for backups and my default is some rsync based tool so it would be the dash dash exclude that directory so but i mean if you don't remember to do that then you have stuff you know lying around I mean, to be fair, I feel like I have that problem anyway, like with a bunch of like dot config files that I don't need anymore or dot local slash share slash or what is it cache or something like that. There there are files that pop up in my home directory and, and when I see it when I see them flying by on the screen as the rsync task is running, you know, I just think I don't need to continue to back up that file or that folder. So it, it, I don't know, it seems to happen either way. But really, I think I'm getting distracted from the point. And the point is, like, what if the file system that we we're using was robust enough to just make that not be a problem anymore? And kind of to, to sort of flatten this concept of, of file removal and just acknowledging that the files aren't getting removed, they're backed up, they're, they're, they're in a snapshot. You can just restore them easily. You don't have to drop down. You don't have to reboot into some other uh, system. You don't have to, you know, because test disk and scalpel and things like that, they generally want you to have the hard drive not mounted and not, or well, mounted, but not, not sort of running as the primary system. You know, you're supposed to sort of go about it with this forensic precision to ensure that the file isn't uh, written over while you're trying to back it up or, or rescue it and stuff like that. And and that isn't that's just not easy. Whereas if it's just a matter of going back in time into your snapshots, then you're done. Now the more I thought about that, the the more I thought, well, do you actually even need that? Do you need ZFS to do that? I mean, not really. You could just back your system up, which is a, the the solution that that I used to use or that that I had imposed on me. That sounds negative, but it, I mean it was set up for me. Let's put it that way. At an old job. Uh, there was, I think it was our snapshot, I think is the system that, that got used. And just in a hidden directory in your home directory, there was, there, there's all your data. 
Uh, and I think that was on, I think it got copied out to like a, an NFS share or something like that. There were, there were multiple stages of backups, uh, because the data was quite important and they did not want people accidentally removing it without a way to get it back. Um, and that worked really well too. And that wasn't ZFS. That was just a function of rigorous backups. So there is that. There's that option. It, it's, it, I think, I think what this email has brought to light, I guess, is that there are multiple ways to handle sort of safe removal of data. And by default, Unix, Linux, the, the, this system, it, it is not set up for, with, with that sort of bundled into, into the system. I, I'm, I'm betting even with ZFS, you have to probably establish those snapshots yourself. You have to probably schedule them or turn that on as an option. So I, I really don't feel like any of the systems we're talking about has that sort of set up. And I would, I would really wonder about like what would happen if during installation of your OS you were presented with your options you, you know you, you were presented with the choice like hey do you want to do a regular regimen of our snapshots so that anything you delete you probably have a version of that in your 15 minutes ago folder or would you prefer to just do um snapshots on your on your file system whether that's ZFS or ButterFS or none of the above, because that's not an option. Um, or would you prefer to do, um, you know, something else, like a, just a, 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 a hidden trash file that you that you don't have to look at and you'll forget about, but when you remove, quote-unquote, remove a file, it gets moved there. You know, like, th those three options, I feel, would be really, really sensible, and, and they would protect people from just sort of this this blithe illusion that we're removing files and if we really need them we'll just stop everything we're doing for a day while we try to go rescue the files and and you know just like it's just it's just the stupidest most thoughtless kind of schema that that I can imagine and yet that's the predominant one that we're using and it annoys me it, it really does it it, it frustrates me because I think there are there are at least three better options that I've just listed a hidden trash file don't like that use a backup so so you're back in rather than staging your deletions you're 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 staging your entire file system you're backing it up somewhere or if you don't like that the third option is to just let your file system handle it because you have faith in your file system's ability to snapshot things and and you're done so those are three really really good options one is super simple can be done in bash demonstrably the second one is really simple there are tools for it and have been for i don't know how long rsync has been around or our snapshot or our diff backup uh, for a long time though and then the third one is slightly highly, uh, slightly specialized and requires at least ZF, ZFS, maybe ButterFS. I don't, I haven't checked in on the actual capabilities of ButterFS in a while. But whatever you, you know, that needs a special file system. You'll have had to install that with your system as well. So that takes a little bit, you know, a little bit of setup at the front. But why aren't these these options being presented to users during install why are we why are we offering people rm still especially since it's all a mind trick we're not really rming the file if once again you want to rm something really sincerely use shred that'll really screw you over and and then won't you be happy that you don't have to look at that file anymore so anyway those are my thoughts on that I think it's a great idea. It's really clever to just use files, file system snapshotting. I have made a, I'm going to call it a soft promise 
to myself first and to Deep Geek second, and I guess implicitly to Brad now because I've talked to him about it. But I've made a, a soft promise to install Slackware 15 once it's out on uh, a ZFS system. Now I haven't quite decided how that's gonna what that's gonna look like yet. It might be uh, installing the base system and then making my home directory ZFS. Um, it, it's going to be a matter of sort of me figuring out how to move data around, essentially, because um, hard drives are physical devices, and I only have so many. So it'll it'll have to be, you know, I'll have to kind of figure that stuff out. But that's my plan. So that's the that's the that's the long term goal is to get actually get onto ZFS. But I think the longer term goal, which I mentioned previously too previous episode longer term goal is to actually use the features of zfs or or whatever file system i end up using whether it's butterfs or zfs or whatever i i need to actually use those system the the features in order to make it really worthwhile because otherwise i'm just i'm just using i'm just using the the file system and it may as well be ext4 because i'm not actually using you know the 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 features that that make it useful Okay, that's my listener email. It's a little bit more scattered than I thought, actually, but um, but I have a lot of thoughts on these things. Okay, so um, next up is P2C is the name of the package, and what that refers to is the Pascal programming language. Pascal programming language is um, it, it, it's based on a very very old programming language called Algol, A L G O L. I believe Algol might have been the first programming language, but I also feel like there are six other programming languages that sort of have the same claim. But Algol is definitely a, a very old one. It has been revised, and um, Algol 68 today still exists. It's something that you could write code in, and, and apparently so you can also write code in Pascal. And there's a site called freepascal.org with a pretty good amount of information on on your options and on that um, on that language and so I'm gonna create a little file called hello.pascal because I don't actually know what the preferred extension for these things are and then I'm gonna um, start a little hello world application here so the first line is going to be program hello semicolon so that's the uh, that's sort of the the announcement of 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 this program, um, it is considered the the it, it is literally the program name. That is what it is called. That's the, the the basic structure of a Pascal file starts with the program name. So I have just declared program hello semicolon and then the um, the begin statement. Now there are other things that could go before the begin statement. There are things like uh, constant declarations and type declarations and variable declarations. Those don't really exist yet in this simple application, so I'm not going to put those in. It's just going to be begin and then write line, so W-R-I-T-E-L-N, space, parentheses, hello world, close parentheses, no, close quote, close parentheses, semicolon, and then the end statement, followed by a dot, and that's the entire application. So if I now go back out to my terminal and issue the command p2c, that's pascal2c, and type in hello.pascal, it tells me, I guess, that it worked. It says that the translation has been complete, and so now I guess I should be able to uh, compile this 
with just GCC, because if I do an ls, I have hello.c. So it's taken hello.pascal, or uh, I guess I could hello.pas, I think is what I actually read, was the sort of common extension. Um, anyway, hello.c, that exists now. So if I do gcc-o hello, and then hello.c, that ought to work, and it does not work. The reason that doesn't, well, I, I don't know why it doesn't work, but I know how to fix it. So it's telling me that there's an undefined reference to Pascal main. And if you look at the C code in hello.c, if you look at that code, you do see that everything's been, you know, you, you, you get a feel for all the, the translations happening. There's an include statement, p2c, p2c.h, main argc argv, int argc, car argv, printf hello world. Oh, wait, that's, uh, oh, that's, sorry, I looked at the wrong one. I looked at the fixed one, not the, the broken one. Anyway, the, the broken one has in it a, a reference to something called Pascal underscore main, all capitals. And if you look at the man page and kind of look around until the very, very end, actually, almost, there is a reference in the issues section to Pascal underscore main. And it says P2C generates a call to this function at the front of the main program in the unmodified runtime library. All this does is save argc and argv away. Because in both HP and Turbo, these are accessed as global variables. If you do not wish to use this feature, define argc name to be argc, argv name to be argv, and main name, normally Pascal underscore main, to be blank. This works if argc and argv are never accessed outside of your main program. All right, so I don't know what kind of implications that has, because I've never written Pascal, and I've never tried translating it to C, but there you go. That's... That's the answer. That's the reason that the error is happening. I still don't quite understand why it's happening, but but that's why it's happening. Um, so the question then becomes: Wait, where do I define argc and argv name and uh, and main name or whatever? Uh, it turns out at the very top of the man page, it also mentions that you can have a configuration file for P2C called P2CRC. The default P2CRC file is located apparently in your home directory, although the notation of the man page is really bizarre. It's dash dash home dir dash dash. I don't know what kind of notation that is. I, I'm assuming it means dollar sign home or tilde. I don't know. Um, so I think that's the main, the standard location of it. The, um, the, the alternate location is a p2crc file in your current directory with the alternate alternate file, I think, being a .p2crc in either of those locations. All right, so if I open up p2crc in my current directory, in my demo directory, argc name, that's capital A, C, and N, argc name equals argc, argv name equals argv, main name, capital M and N, main name equals nothing, just save it, save quit. Now I'm going to do, well, I'm actually going to remove hello.c, the, well, you already know because I slipped up earlier that I have the fixed version already, but um, I'm going to remove the bad one, and then I'm going to run p2rc, no, sorry, p2c on hello.pas, that regenerates the c file, and now I'm going to do gcc-o hello, space hello.c, I still, I get a warning about a return type defaulting to int uh, because it's not, it hasn't been declared specifically in the C code. So I, I could go into the C code, I guess, 
Oh, that's the binary. I just opened up a binary. That's not what I meant to do. I could go in there and I could throw in int main and then do gcc o hello hello c. Now I don't even get a warning, so that's really good. So if I do an ls, I have a um, a binary called hello. If I do a dot slash hello, I get hello world, which is the expected output. So that works. So p2c works. p2 cc is a convenience uh, command, as far as I can tell, that takes your Pascal file, converts it, and then compiles it with whatever your default compiler is. So I'll do that really quick. p2cc hello.pas. Um, it, it, it's working off of the auto-generated C file, so I get that warning about not having declared what kind of return statement main is going to have, um, but, but it, it still does generate a working binary in the end. Um, I guess to just verify that, I should get rid of the pre-existing binaries. There we go. So yes, it's called a.out, and I'll do a dot slash a.out, and I get hello. Um, again, the C code that it's using that I don't think touches my disk, like hello.c, uh, yeah, my, my hello.c file is still intact. So it's it's it does the translation and probably pipes it to GCC or something and dumps out the results. So I feel like it's a convenience command for people who feel pretty good about their code. Because obviously, uh, I mean, just one minor example of not declaring the output type of main gives a warning. I mean, it, it auto-corrects it anyway in the compiler, but that's a that's a minor example on a Hello World application. So I feel like I would be nervous about make, just letting it go in a more complex application, personally. I think I would want to see that intermediate step. But you know what? This is like the first time I've ever used this application. Maybe you get a, you know, you probably get a feel for it as you use it more often. If you're actually writing a bunch of Pascal and translating it to C, you probably know what's safe to just auto, auto compile versus what might need a little bit more intervention. I don't have much to say about Pascal, honestly. I mean, I used a system that used Pascal as its main programming language for like a pretty long time uh but but I, I certainly wasn't aware that it was pascal or even that code existed um i mean it so it so in other words it, it it's a language that drove certainly apple into sort of you know into into success i mean not you you can't say that it it drove apple so much into success that they didn't walk away from it <laughs> when they when they switched to um i guess objective c so I don't know what that says about Pascal, but I mean, it does seem like a, a rather reasonable language. There's a really good article that I'll link to about Algol 68 on opensource.com, so I will link to that. Um, th that one uh, is by a guy named Chris Hermanson, and um, he's got a lot of insight on on sort of that as an older language and kind of how that relates to the modern way of of doing things. Now that's not Pascal. That's that's Algol 68. It's different. You know, th th they are different entities. But um, I think it it does offer some interesting an interesting insight on on kind of that structure of program and those keywords and just kind of the way that you you, you uh, how you think about the code when when there's such a different structure to it. I think the closest I've gotten to this this kind of 
change in thinking has been Lisp, where you know you just I, I keep wanting to force things into Lisp the way that I think of them in something else, and it, it, it sometimes it just doesn't work like that. It's just the syntax is too different, and you can draw connections if you want, but at the end of the day, it's still it is still it's still different. Um, so yeah, it's it's an interesting little study. So check that out if you're interested. Uh, for uh, as for P2C, I think I think you get the idea. Um, there are issues, obviously. They are pretty well documented, but I mean that's that's the one I found. Like there 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 are other ones listed in the man page, and then you have to wonder whether or not there are even more outside of that. You don't have to use P2C though. Understand there are there's free Pascal, and that has compilers and things like that that you could use to just compile the Pascal code. So apparently you can do that. I have not. I did not bother. It wasn't worth uh, trying because really the target was to understand P2C and to get around that <laughs> initial error of not even a Hello World application running. But got it. We got there in the end, and um, and you can do it. You can you could write Pascal, translate it to C, compile the C code, and run your application. That's everything I have to say about O profile and P2C. So thank you for listening. In the next episode, I imagine we'll cover Perl and package config, or maybe just Perl. We'll see how far along I get with Perl. So thanks for listening. Talk to you next time. Thanks for listening. My name's Klaatu. You can reach me anytime over email with feedback or comments, tips, or just to say hi. My email address is klaatu at slackermedia.info. You can also reach me on the Mastodon network, not klaatu, at mastodon.xyz. The show's intro and outro music is by Fat Chance Lester. You can find their music on bandcamp.com or on gnuworldorder.info in the archive you'll find a music directory containing the album from which this music has been extracted until next time thanks for listening and keep the source open
one explanation for what happened may lie in the working of the human brain.